looking for someone who has not yet asked a question. You might have, but um, is uh, is it appropriate to look at uh, interest as a risk premium? And if so, uh, is there a way to accurately price that risk, or is, is the very act of trying to price that risk actually a destabilizing? Oh, well, I think it's accurate to regard that. Yeah, if you think about the bank lending money, then they're taking a risk you won't be able to repay it back. So there's, there's a legitimate basis for having an interest rate in that sense. So I'm in favour of that. I made this part of the question, though. That's the part I agree with. Is there a way to actually, is it possible to accurately price that risk, and, or is the very act of pricing it, or the attempt of pricing it, actually you know, a destabilising factor? Uh, it's, that's to say, I'm, I'm not worried about the price of money so much as the amount of debt issued. So the price itself, in a sense, is stabilising, but um, what you tend to see over time is a fairly close relationship between the loan rate and the deposit rate, because the banks create the money by lending it, pay a lower rate on the deposits, and make a profit on the margin, and they'll have more loans outstanding than they have cash. That all turns up in the simulations I've done in the uh, model here as well. So. That's all sane. So the more the worry isn't the worry isn't so much the uh, the level of debt, or the price of debt as its level. That's what you need to control. Of course, if you get to the stage of wanting a sustainable economy, and you look at what can be sustained on our biosphere, it tends to be an annual rate of growth of about one percent. And having interest rate above that may be a problem. Okay, let's see hands again. Who's got a question? Someone back there. In um, peak oil circles or transition circles, we sort of see with peak oil, or sort of common wisdom among that group, that with peak oil comes the end of economic growth, mm. sort of on a permanent level. Yeah. In other words, that there won't be some recovery to some normal state, which is growth. And I can't tell exactly where you stand on that. Like I agree with you. I just that I, I, um, I often say that the, the um, real world at the moment is a bit like a bad episode of Star Trek where you've got Klingons coming in from one side, Borg from the other, and, you're, and your system's about to f fall apart for a third reason. Um, nobody could ever have dared write a fiction story where you had three simultaneous global crises all hitting at once. But that's exactly what we've got. And it brings back to one of my favourite lines, and that is that the difference, the difference between fact and fiction is that fiction follows a plot. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I agree that peak oil will bring growth to, a, to an end, and ultimately, I've, I'm, I've got fairly, a fairly negative perspective on what's going to happen in the 21st century to the human species, given both that and global warming. But I'm a long-term optimist, so I think we'll get around it. But it involves taking ourselves off the planet in terms of our production processes because the biosphere can't cope with the level of waste and the sheer entropy we throw into it uh, as this technological species that we are. But sure, FICO will stop the growth. <laughs> Believe me, I've thought that one before. <laughs> Steve, will you restate, restate that one since he didn't have the mic? <laughs> well, the question was, uh, given the global warming and people are likely to wipe us out, what's the importance of knowing about the financial system? Uh, I think it's a bit like the old saying of Oxymandias, you know the poem about Oxymandias? 
uh, the person comes across a, a broken down statue in the middle of the desert saying, I am Ozymandias, king of kings, look upon my works, you mighty and tremble. And you think, you look around and see a desert and think, what the hell happened? Well, I'm partly doing a bit of the explanation of what the hell happened. And if we ever get through it, we'll be recreating financial systems again and I wouldn't like to make the same mistakes. But I do see global warming and peak oil as more important problems, but unfortunately I trained as an economist. <laughs> Steve? Um, I wonder if you, that, that graph with where the graph started to, you know, it was moving, the first one you did and it was moving, it was really neat, but I didn't understand it. Would it I'll study your PowerPoint, but I, it would be cool if you could possibly do that again. Uh, let's, let's see, which, which, was it the, uh, this one here, with all the cycles going on, or um, the simpler one? Okay, I'll love that. How one. about the first graph after you added in all the participants? Yeah. Because actually, the very first graph you didn't have in the wage earners. Yeah, well, workers. This, is a, this is the middle one I skipped over where I've got the uh, uh, money in the vault being repaid as well. So I'll just uh, get those graphs up and talk about those. Let's see. Ah. What's happened here? Can you explain each cell of each line on that? Can <laughs> I explain no, what again? There's not that many lines of cells. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go through the lines step by step. This is the table. Not the table, the chart. Uh, the, the diagram. The diagram. Yeah. Okay. Well, the diagram is generated by the, by the table. So what you're seeing there, that, that diagram is actually automatically created. I'll just show you here with the... That's the table showing the flows that are going on. So I've got lending from the vault, loans going from the vault to the firms, and the bank recording the loans over here. I've got a charging interest on the loans, and then the firm pays interest across to the safe, and then the bank records that that's been done. The, firm, the bank then pays interest from the safe to the, to the firm's account on their deposit interest. The firm then pays wages to the workers. The workers get interest payments. The bankers consume, the workers consume, and then I've added down here is the firm repays by transferring money back to the vault and the bank records that money is being paid. Now, that table literally automatically creates that diagram. It's messy, so I won't actually show you that. If I do all the icons turn up in the top left-hand corner, you've got to drag them around to make it look correct and so on. Actually, what I, I'll, I'll do that in a second after I've run, get done a run through the program to show you uh, how it works. But if we now start stepping through that, what you're seeing is each time I click, the amount of money gets transferred out of the vault. What is the vault again? The vault is where the, the notes are first created. This is like the 19th century uh, free money system where you actually had physical notes printed by private banks circulating through the system. So it gets let out of the vault and goes down into the firm's uh, deposit account. So if I do another click here, pardon me, you'll see that amount in the vault go down and the amount in the firms go up. So if you look at these two together, you see that relationship taking place right now. Now as it happens, the firm's now got a debt which is being recorded over here. Notice the debt's slightly higher than what's in the firm's deposit account right now. So it has to pay interest on that, and that means money pays over to the safe, and the safe also pays interest back, deposit interest here, depending on what's outstanding there. The firm is using the money to hire workers, so workers are getting money in their account and they're consuming again. Yep? But it seems to me that that assumes that the firm is 
I do have numbers on it. You can't see them, can you? Well, I mean, you don't know that the numbers are what would actually happen in a firm. It, I, of course, a, a, a profitable firm has enough money to pay the interest on its loans. That's not the issue. But where does that interest come from ultimately? They're taking profits from somewhere else. No, interest is, interest is a circulation, Ellen. The, the basic story is that, I'll put it this way, if you have $100 of debt in the system, debt created money, and it's turning over three times annually, and we know that we talk about a velocity of money all the time, so we know the velocity of money is greater than one. Okay? So you have $100, let's say it's causing $300 worth of circulation over time. Then the, and the workers make, say, $200 worth of wages. The capitalists make $100 worth of profit. They've got to transfer $5 of that as interest back to the bank again. And it's quite easy for them to pay that $5 and keep on making that same rate of circulation all the time. The mistake that people who believe interest can't be repaid are making, they're believing you've got to take money out of the system. Now, the bank is making the interest as part of the turnover of the system. Yeah, there's certainly the system breaks down, and I'm talking about a system that doesn't have breakdowns. Uh, but and the system does, and it has collapses. That's why I built the later model. But at the fundamental level, it's not impossible. Now, the usual story, people, when, when they say this case, they say it's impossible. I'm saying that's wrong. It is quite feasible to have a sustainable system. However, it does break down, and therefore, it isn't the inherent nature of the system. It's something about how it behaves that causes the trouble. And I have no argument with you on that point. It, it, it does almost always do that. But that's why I say you've got to be correct about what's causing the trouble because, again, one of the biggest dangers in, in being a social reformer is making a social reform where you don't understand the system. And then you generate one of two things. Either you cause the problems you're trying to stop or you cause even bigger ones and you end up destroying the, the good vision you began with and being blamed for creating a worse society. Now, that's happened often enough in human history. I don't want to see us repeat it. Okay, Steve, can you, can you continue with the diagram again? Yeah. Will you start from me? Because I'm a worker, and I don't understand this unless you start from me. <laughs> well, shall I, shall I go back to the beginning I'm again? I'm a worker, yeah, where am I? Okay, you're a worker down here. You've got nothing in your account whatsoever. <laughs> I know this, that's actually... Both, that, that sounds like both the, before, uh, two years ago. Yeah. Both before and after the gold speculation. Yeah, okay. that's, uh, it was okay. the oil speculation, okay. actually. Now, as soon as the bank lends money to the firm... The firm's paying money across to wages. And the workers are then spending that money quite rapidly. The, one of the background elements to the whole model here, which I haven't explained in detail, is that different agents in the system spend out of their accounts, depending how much money's in their account, and they spend at different speeds. So if you imagine your own situation as a worker getting paid on a fortnightly basis, you might get paid, say, $1,000 a fortnight, and you will then spend most of that $1,000 in the subsequent fortnight. So you're, as a result, you will turn over your account 26 times a year. So the value I'm using inside there says effectively that workers spend their accounts, their account balances 26 times a year, or in the equivalent sense, I say that the time lag in their expenditure is about two weeks. Okay? Now with bankers, I say the time lag's about a year. 
So this is a hand-to-mouth type situation. Hand-to-mouth side for the workers, caveat and mouth for the, cap for the bankers. Paycheck to paycheck, living paycheck to paycheck. Living paycheck to paycheck, which is the workers do. Therefore, as a result, what you'll see, I'll just stop it for a second and show you. Notice, I'll just change, the, I'm showing the rates of flow as well. Actually, I'm doing that there. The workers only have $11 of 11 million, 11 billion, whatever, but 11 units in their account, but they're spending 310 units per annum. Okay? Whereas the bankers... That's fine. The bankers have got 3.7 in their account, and they're, sp they're spending pretty much the same level. Because they've got a one-for-one -one relationship there. If I made it two-for-one, they'd have uh, uh, 3.7 in the side there, and 1.7 coming out, 1.8 coming out. So that's where the rate, the, the various levels occur. And what I've got going on in the productive system as well is physical surpluses being produced. You have to have more output than inputs, otherwise you'll never have a profitable economy. Now, of course, that's part of the dilemma we have. We live on a finite planet. We're actually not breaching the second law of thermodynamics. But the reason we have growing output over time is because we create more waste than we create output. That's where our pollution problems are coming from. Okay. So, but I'm assuming that element there, that we have a, an, a system which locally defies entropy by producing more refined outputs each year out of the, the set number of refined inputs. And that physical productivity is, has to be there to have monetary profitability as well. Do we have other questions on how this model works right here? Before, there's a lot of people that have questions, so. Okay, uh, yeah, I've got a question. This is related to, um, you talk about debt induced, or debt deflation. Yeah. And you show in your model that, um, how the system, when it hits a certain debt level, then things fall off the map. I think you showed the debt deleveraging happening dramatically and unemployment rising. Where are we, do you think, um, on that where's, scale. The, where's the U.S. right now on that scale? And have we, and you showed that we started to stabilize because we, I think, have been doing a lot of stimulus here in the U.S. But where do you think, are, are we at a point where debt levels have been reduced enough for us to have a sound economy going forward, or do you think we need to continue to deleverage, and how long will that take, and then what do you think is the impact on our security markets going forward? I, I think you've got about, you've paid your debt level down from about three, this is the private sector alone, from about 300% of GDP to 270%, and I think you've got about another 150% to go. Yeah, I, is that... Okay, because I think the Great Depression, didn't it go from around, down to about 50% of GDP yeah, in, went from, in 1933, yeah, it reached 30, yeah, you, 50%? You, yeah, you had 175% of GDP as your debt level in 1935. It rose to 235%, not because debt rose, debt actually fell, but because GDP and prices fell faster. The deflation hit you. Then you got to the other side of that, and you uh, had both reducing debt and rising GDP, and then you had the Second World War, which involved a huge amount of money going to firms which paid off their debts. And the government debt went up like a rocket by comparison, but came down in the, at the, uh, over time in the 50s and 60s. But you began the post-war period with a debt ratio of about 45% of GDP. From that point on, you began accelerating debt. This is one intriguing issue, and it, it comes back to that point about this being a sufficient but not a necessary aspect of capitalism. In my own country, I think I can show you a graph to that effect in Australia, I've uh, got this further on. Australia had a 20-year period. That's Australia's debt level over um, uh, the last um, 160 years. And you'll notice that 
as much as I'm showing the three debt bubbles, there's a period here from 1945 to 1965 where the ratio is pretty much 25%. Now, your ratio continued rising straight away. I think it's got something to do with the speculative nature of American capitalism, and the negative sides of speculation. Um, but it implies to me your stable debt ratio is maybe about twice our level, maybe 45 maybe 60 70% of GDP. When you start getting beyond that level, you start getting a speculative takeover. And if you break the aggregate level of debt in America down into its components, which I don't have a graph of here straight away, uh, you'll find that the real growth, the real difference between the Australian debt level and the American debt level is the shadow banking sector. We don't have much of a shadow banking sector at all. You also began with a debt ratio of about 10% of GDP back in about the 1960s and rose to 120% of GDP. That's almost the entire difference between the debt levels of our two societies. And that shadow banking debt, when the banking sector lends to the shadow bank, that creates money. When the shadow banking sector lends to the public, that doesn't create money, but it creates more debt. Now, that, I think, is what's actually driven you into the hole you're in. And so that's one reason why I say, far from wanting to save the merchant banks like the Goldman Sachs and so on, I want to abolish them, certainly bankrupt them. That's, they already are bankrupt. I want to, I want to just, you know sign on the dotted line rather than give them money to keep them afloat. But that involves a dramatic drop in debt levels. And of course that itself means a drop in demand capacity. So it still means something like a decade if you do it in the slow process of bankruptcies and so on. I think it would be far, far fairer to, in a sense which doesn't disadvantage people actually who are genuinely savers, abolish the debt. About 80% of it just deserves to be abolished on the spot. What path do you think the US will follow? I mean, will it be more like Japanese over the next two decades, or are we going to be, are we going to wash out quickly like the, the three years in the Great Depression from 29 to 30? 30. You give me, give me a chance to use one of my other favourite quotes, and that's from Winston, Winston Churchill, the once remarked that America will always do the right thing after it's exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> so, what, what I see you doing is going through many, several more attempts to rescue the banks all of which succeed in rescuing the banks and fail in rescuing the economy. And you get to the stage where bankers uh, realise that they'd be safer off in a prison than outside it. <laughs> and uh, you then finally have a political change which overthrows them, and then you start getting something like the New Deal combined with uh, a uh, punitive system for the bankers that cause the trouble in the first instance. Uh, but I think you're about th maybe three to five years from getting to that point. And when you look back at the Great Depression, it took you... You're a bit faster in the Great Depression because you had better social organisation back then than you have now. Uh, it'll take you quite a while to get your social organisation to get together to the stage where you can get something rather more sensible than the Tea Party to uh, go and uh, dunk the bankers in the Boston Harbour rather than Maine. Who else has a question? Please raise your hand. Oh, come around like this. <laughs> You show um, the price levels being driven by wages. Hmm. Um, how, how does your debt deflation connect up with your capital output? How, how, how do the debt? I missed that warning, but repeat, please. Um, how, how do you add in this um, this debt to GDP ratio to the, to your uh, oh, capital this, to output? Yeah. This, the whole, whole model is an integrated model, so the inflation terms break down to being having just three elements to it. The capitalist share of, of surplus, which effectively determines the markup on costs, wages, and physical productivity per worker. 
those are the three terms inside there. I've kept the markup constant, but I could make that a variable as well. It's just there's no obvious way whether I should make it rise or fall at the rate of profit or economic circumstances. But even though there's only those three factors in there, the level of wages themselves are determined by the flow of money out of the, out of the firm's accounts, and the flow of money there is determined by what's actually in there, plus their own willingness to lend, which depends upon the rate of profit, and the rate of profit is net of interest payments on debt. So it's all interconnected. You've got to have a... This is one reason you do need a general model to tie all these factors together, which is why I'm arguing in favour of systems dynamics thinking to understand what's going on, hence my comment to Aaron earlier on. So, so it, it, is, it is there, but the, you've got to feed through... You've got to follow four or five steps before you find where it's coming from. But the debt level is in there because the level of wages reflects the rate of flow of money out of deposit accounts of banks, which reflect their profit rates, which depend upon their net, their net surplus, net of wages and interest payments. So it's all there. Um, this goes to the, uh, the power of the priesthood, as it were. Uh, I think most people would admit there's something akin to a revolving door between Wall Street and positions of power exactly like the Fed and the Treasury um, and uh, it also seems that uh, the economists who have gotten in those economists and financiers who have gotten those positions uh, it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that they intentionally pontificate obfuscate and posture as well, like, as well as dismissing, demeaning, and her attacking anyone who doesn't agree with them. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's a dangerous thing to say there's a conspiracy there. <laughs> or even to suggest it's uh, uh, far too much collusion that's appropriate. Yeah, it's... Um, what are your, I'm just wondering what yeah, your yeah. thoughts on that and, and whether you think that these guys meet behind doors and say, man, we're going to nail anybody that questions the theory we've been putting out. Well, they definitely do that. That's what they do in editorial decisions when they decide not to publish my papers when I submit them to conventional <laughs> journals. Uh, but it's a, it, it's, a, it's a conspiracy of ignorance, not a conspiracy of people who understand the system. And this, I mean, I'm very anti-conspiracy theories as an explanation of what's actually happening, where they argue the conspirators know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> if conspirators haven't got a clue, then I'm quite happy to agree there are conspiracies going on. And the conspiracy that applies here is that you have a bunch of economists who actually believe economic theory, as they were taught at university, which is a mythological view of how the world operates. And they then make sure that myth is well perpetuated, persecute anybody who pushes an alternative analysis of it, call them a radical when, in fact, I regard myself as far more conservative than they are, in the sense that they end up being radical conservatives who believe the system is so stable it can change, take enormous change, including all the reforms they've done to, abo reforms to abolish all the social supports for the previous 40 years, deregulate this, abolish that, move jobs overseas, etc., etc., and they believe it's going to remain in general equilibrium. It seems like it's more than belief, though. It's there, it's the there's a certain amount... There's cer the there's are really yeah, there, there, there is certainly... God yeah. took it care of, taking care of during the... Uh, with the yeah, there's certainly that element to it. I'm not arguing there isn't. I'm saying they got themselves in this situation by sheer accident. They never thought they'd be here. If you actually, it's well worth reading uh, Henry Paulson's book um, on the brink to get a feeling of just how terrified they were and how little an idea they had of what was happening until it actually hit them and how they still don't understand it. But having said that, they then 
of protecting their own. So when it comes to a decision about what to do with the banking sector, they do what Obama was advised to do, which was to lend the money to the, uh, to the banks rather than giving it to the, to, the, to the debtors. Now, that was based on the money multiplier theory of how money is created. And that argues that if you give it, you know, a dollar to a bank, it'll become $10 in the public. And, and Obama, when he gave his speech, you can find this in the New York Times record of the speech, he literally said at one stage, plenty of people are saying, you bailed out the banks, not us. What about, where's our bailout? And he says, the truth is, poor bugger, the truth is, in other words, what I was told by an economist is, <laughs> that a dollar of money given to a bank generates 10 times as much money in the public, a multiplier effect, you use that expression, okay, yeah. which gives us much better returns. Well, that's coming from the static neoclassical way of thinking. So one thing I've done is we've all been a model of that, and I'll just give you a quick look at that uh, here. And I've, this is a model where I'm simply modelling a stable economy that then has a credit crunch. I'm looking for my simulate button here. Okay, let's go there. So this is an economy that has a credit crunch at year 25, and that credit crunch is driven by just out of the blue, banks decide to lend less, lend less uh, money, uh, firms repay the debts more rapidly, etc., etc. I change those three factors. And you see what happens. You have a dramatic increase in unemployment, and then it falls back down to a higher level than before, but lower than during the slump itself. Well, if I then bring in a stimulus that goes to the banks in, year, in the 26th year, and I run the same simulation again, what you see is exactly the same situation until the stimulus hits. You give the money to the banks and yes, you do have a smaller slump. So it does work to reduce the scale of the downturn. But what about if you give exactly the same amount of money at exactly the same time to the, to the firms rather than to the banks? This is what you get. So the real bang for your buck is giving the money to the debtors, not to the banks. And you can see that by thinking in the terms I've shown you here, because think about those vessels and the money flowing between the vessels. The, what Obama did was pour the money into the vessel which had clammed up the most and flowed the slowest. Whereas what I'm saying is you pour the money into the bank, into the vessel that's still remaining open and pumps fastest. And if you want to get the money passing through the system more rapidly, you rescue the system by giving the money to the debtors, not to the banks. Now, the decision to give it to the banks was A, due to bad theory, but B, it was self-serving. The people who made those decisions were the Laurie Summers of the, Larry Summers of the world and the, the Paulsons and so on. So definitely that revolving door in Washington is a major reason why you've got a political logjam and an economic logjam in your own society. You've got to get rid of them. Hi, um, uh, uh, firstly, my name is David Karavich and thank you for a wonderful presentation. I have two interrelated questions. Um, I'm here from Ireland. And as you know, uh, I was expecting the IMF to be coming in as I was leaving. Hmm. Um, uh, I don't know how, in what sort of detail you know about the situation, but in short, um, we don't need to go to the bond market probably until March, hmm. but they're being traded 10-year bonds at over 9% at the moment. Hmm. Um, we've got a massive budget deficit, huge debt, blah, 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 blah. And of course, we are uh, the leading ponies for a series of Eurozone defaults, which mm. will affect Germany and France and other places that have lent so much to us. Mm. Uh, what we're trying to do is sort of say, how do we deal with this? Mm. Part of the organisations I'm with 
both in Ireland and in Europe. And I was wondering, firstly, any insights? Mm. Um, yeah, seeing as we're stuck at the moment in the Eurozone, however long it lasts. And secondly, one of the things we have been arguing, uh, though because we're a bit off kilter, I don't know how awkward, how easy, how people listen to us, is just giving per capita allocations of money directly into accounts mm. uh, across the Eurozone. Uh, any thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, um, Ireland is in the same situation as all the European states where they have fiscal budgets under their own national control, but they don't control the money system, which puts them in the same situation as American states relative to the American economy, that the American government that runs out of American dollars can print more American dollars in both a literal sense and a figurative sense, and therefore it doesn't face a, a budget constraint. It has what a, a great non-orthodox economist, Janos Kornai, called a soft budget constraint. Like, if it needs to spend more money, it simply prints more money. Or it can do that. And under quantitative easing, it is doing that. Whereas the states, if they run out of, out of money, have to you know, sack garbage collectors. Now, Europe is doing the same thing to itself through the euro. So what you really should be doing is you, you know, break down that rule and spend no longer limit uh, deficits to 3% of GDP. If you're in a larger deficit, require the European Bank to fund it. That's a huge political shift because that neoclassical idea that you should only spend what you earn as a, as a nation uh, afflicts the decision-making rules of the, of the uh, European Union. So you should be literally spending the money. My analogy there in some ways is that the, I, I've modelled the banking sector as a, of a pure credit economy and I've shown what happens when that goes into seizure. Now, of course, the world we live in is a mixture of a credit economy and a fiat system. And in effect, you can regard the... Just like I regard the banks as being a, a system that has to expand debt over time, the government can be regarded as a banking sector in its own right, which gets its money back through taxing, and it should be expanding its money supply as well, which means it should be running a deficit over time with a growing economy. Now, when you have a downturn with the credit system, the private credit system goes into seizure, the last thing you want to do is have the government sector do exactly the same thing. But that's pretty much what's happening now by the government sectors in Europe saying we've got to slash spending. And we're going to get a classic economic experiment again now of comparing what happens in, Ameri in Europe to what happens in America. And at least in America, the, government, the federal government is still spending money and ignoring any socially imposed constraint upon itself, whereas the British in particular have gone straight into that massive constraint and they're suggesting the same thing upon Europe. When you had a breakdown of the private credit system, you don't want to have the, the, the government financial system breakdown as well. That's exactly what they're doing. So you should be turning it over, arguing that the, the entire deficit should be, should be funded by an issue of new money, not by creating debt or selling bonds, doing that straight away, and chuck the IMF out. And then start reducing that, use that money to pay down the, the private debt levels as well, because a large part of your problem is this ridiculous debt you ran up in your own housing bubble, which of course Australia's been far too intelligent to do exactly the same bloody thing. Uh, that's, you know, they'd abolish the debt right off the, right off the banks, nationalise the banks in the process. Why are people afraid of nationalising banks when the banks have already bankrupted themselves? You know, we're not afraid of putting a company into receivership if it fails. That's exactly what you'd be doing with the banking sector. So put them in receivership nationally for a while until you reform this behaviour and get it out of it. But in Ireland, yeah, demand that the, the government spends 
start printing. What do you, what do you, what do you used to call your currency? Uh, well, this is what, I mean, we, we've been arguing for something like you were saying. We had punts, uh, which were, you know, obviously got rid of. We've been arguing for a new issuance of a currency yep. with, of course, the attendant risks that there's capital flight, et cetera, et cetera. Put them um, on a plane. Tell them which way to buy. Well, Tell them. I, I mean, yeah, obviously, these sort of things get easier when you see the hole you're in. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, we're still trying to honour the parasites that caused the problem in the first place. And you had a, you had a huge housing bubble over there, uh, which has now come unstuck, and you ran up debts in the housing bubble. It was, when you think about who was irresponsible, was it, was it the Irish equivalent of Mar and Par Kettle taking on the debt and believing that you could have the Irish Celtic tiger forever with rising house prices? Or was it the bank with 150 PhDs persuading them they could actually afford the debt in the first place? And the true irresponsibility was at the bankers, not at the borrower's end. So the bankers and their system should be taking the hit, not the public. But again, we're imposing the pain on the public that actually with the, the seeming guilty bystander rather than the outrageously guilty banker are the one who are copying it. So you've got to change the political push and, and put the bankers out the door. And if it involves capital flight, so be it, because most of that capital was hot speculative money anyway. Let them go. We have, we have time just for a few more questions. Um, yes, thank you. My name is Peter Bain. I'm here from Bloomington, Indiana, and I want to appreciate your taking us on a romp through some rather difficult concepts and doing it extremely well. Uh, at the end of your talk, you talked about three or so things that you thought would help us avoid this kind of crisis the next time it comes around. Mm. Uh, one of those was uh, limiting property leverage or property loan leverage to 10 times the value of annual rental. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that, just to clarify that small point, or large point, mm -hmm. do you imagine that that's the amount that should be lent on a piece of property? Yeah. About 10 times its annual yeah. rental that's value. A, that's, I mean, you've got to think of a rough rule of thumb here, which is why I thought 50 years for shares to last, which is pretty much a human working lifetime. and. Uh, 10 times annual rental for a property because taking a place I'm living in right now, which I'm renting, as most people in Australia seem to know, um, that and quite a few people here it turned out too, uh, that I'm paying about $26,000 a year rent for it. So that would mean if, if my system applied, the most you could borrow to buy it would be $260,000. And then the purchase price is likely to be something below $400,000. And I'm sure right now my house would sell for no less than $700,000 a year. And that's because the greater fill valuation is so much higher. And rental returns are ludicrously low in my country. If you're a landlord, you're losing money. The only reason you do it is you expect to sell the house to another landlord later for a profit, which is where the whole gearing thing comes in. So a level of 10 to me implies a couple of things. First of all, it brings house prices down drastically. Secondly, and with the leverage effect ruled out for a future bubble. Secondly, I think at that level, it'd be feasible to imagine being a landlord buying properties and actually making a profit out of the rent. Actually, so your rental income would, returns would exceed your interest payments. And that, to me, is actually necessary. And as normally a lefty be regarded as being anti-landlords, I want to have a strong class of landlords who actually make money out of renting with good rights for tenants at the same time, because that would give you a political class with clout against the bankers to stop the reforms being unwound at a later date. Um, we've, we've seen in the uh, political discourse, our, our new Tea Party discourse, that uh, 
the certain right-wing factions don't want to over-regulate, in quotes, the, mm. the banking sector mm. because we would stifle innovation. Yeah. Now, do you, do you foresee innovations that can change any of these cycles, or is this just, you know, hot air to, you know, allow them to figure out a better way to steal the next time around? Yeah, innovation in the banking is the last thing you want. When the last decent innovation that came in, 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 I think, in banking was the auto teller, and that happened in Australia's case uh, some several many years before banking deregulation occurred, and I'm the expert on that because my father was the man who brought them in, the Commonwealth Bank. Um, so there is technological innovation like that is quite useful in banking, but derivatives and CDOs and swap counters and all this sort of stuff is simply geared speculative leverage and. Call that engineering as an insult to engineers. So that's not where you want innovation. You want it actually in the physical economy, the productive economy. And that's that's the genuine place where you need real innovation. So I, um, but I, at the same time, I don't trust regulators. Because regulators end up being like well, Alan, Green, Alan Greenspan gets the job one day, you know, rather than somebody who's actually cynical about the financial sector. And regulators get captured, and even when they're not captured, they move far too slowly. Even when you've got a, Bill, a, Bill, a William Black in control, he does it after the event rather than before. So regulations won't solve the problems, and banks will find their ways around the regulations until they cause the next crisis, when you re-regulate again, like you're bringing back in Glass-Steagall now. So my, that's why my idea is to actually change the nature of the instruments in the very first instance, and make it much less likely that you'll ever get the level of power in the financial sector that it currently has. Because a large part of this change has occurred is because as the banks increased their leverage and, and, power and financial might during the 50s and 60s and 70s, they got to the stage where they became the advisors to the president rather than the industrialists and so on. And now you've got the stage where the president's trying to rescue the financial speculators rather than trying to get America re-industrialised. So that's a long-winded answer, but uh, I'm glad to see innovation stifled in the financial sector. I want to see it recreated in the industrial economy, and the best way to do that is to put the bankers back in the boxes where they should never have escaped from in the first place. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the charts and, and everything. It helped very much. I'm pretty much a hayseed when it comes to <laughs> economics. Um, You're ahead of most economists then. Okay, good. Uh, uh, three years ago, I arrived in Oakland County, which I think about six years ago was the fourth wealthiest county in the country. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing community work there and now found myself down in Detroit. And Detroit right now, uh, the city is looking at, at how to shrink city services. And uh, now community activists have these foundations coming in that are really interested in investing in Detroit and doing something. So, yeah. so local currencies being talked about, barter systems, um, state banks. Uh, any recommendations on... Yeah what to do with large sums of money coming into an area like that. Yeah, well, I think the idea of local currencies makes a lot of sense during a crisis like now because you've really got a breakdown in the general financial system. And in that situation, a local currency works well. They work quite well in Germany in the Great Depression uh, before the Nazis took over. Uh, they work well in parts of Austria and parts of England and so on. So. I'm not generally a believer in local currency systems as a total replacement uh, to the financial system we live in because it doesn't support the level of industrialisation we need as a species, ultimately. But 
it is something which works quite well in a downturn. So they used that money to establish a local currency system and they got a non-debt-based money circulating at that stage in a place like Detroit that could generate a lot of economic activity, which is what you need. So, again, generally I'm against the idea of creating an alternative monetary system to what we have, but what we have is in total stuff-up mode and people who've got no idea of how it works are supposed to be the ones trying to fix it, then that's all the reason to form a local system that actually works. And then you mentioned entrepreneurship. There's a lot of young entrepreneurs. Can you empower them to... Pardon? Sorry, my hearing is bad. Uh, you had mentioned entrepreneurs, yeah, and and there's a lot of lot of entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs in Detroit right now. Yeah, empower them, put yeah. the money there. Yeah, and look. absolutely, and also, I mean, financialization isn't the only myth you've swallowed for neoclassical economics. You've also swallowed free trade, which economically is a load of nonsense. Believe believe by economists, which is the best proof that it's wrong. Um, <laughs> And that also would mean that the part of where the deindustrialization of Detroit came from was the whole shift of industrial power from America to China right. in particular. The Chinese knew what they were doing, the Americans didn't. Um, so you have to also stop that sort of thing happening. But certainly yeah, giving local entrepreneurs the money to, to get established, to start innovating, that's what made America a decent society back in the 50s and 60s. And I actually have a, a colleague of mine who's just moved back uh, managing director of a bio, uh, in bio, uh, biotechnology firms. And he moved to America because he always had this vision of how great America was on the innovative front. He's finally left because he's sick and tired of answering his phone and finding somebody trying to get money off him in another scam. He's back in Australia again. Now, I think you've really let the financial sector take over. And uh, I'll finish on a quote from Marx as best as I can remember it, writing back in, I think, Capital Volume 3, at one stage out of the blue he explodes, talk about centralisation. The financial system and the usurers and money lenders who hang off them uh, constitute an enormous power and occasionally get this, the capacity to take over the system. He said, and these parasites know nothing about production and should have nothing to do with it. Carl was on the money. Stop ignoring him. <laughs> um, if I'm understanding what you said earlier, your model... Uh in theory, can can be a stable yeah. model, um, given human, you know, failed, you know, foibles. It probably never would be, but yeah. in theory, could be, mm -hmm. given peak oil, climate change, everything else that's coming. Assuming there's, you know, a, a, another side to all this, uh, how does, in my, from what I see so far, I, I'm looking at the only thing possibly working, given resource constraints, is some sort of steady state kind of economy, mm. but it seems like your model, even if it's kind of stable, still implies a degree of growth. Yeah. So how, how do you reconcile those two issues? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to get to the stage where population growth stops. We've got, I think, again, human population is far too large on the planet compared to its carrying capacity, given the, given the resource standards we all aspire to. Certainly that's the case. So you've got to get to the stage where you have really no growth in population and that probably means a substantial fall in population over time as well. And then you have increasing productivity, meaning we reduce the entropic load we put on the planet over time through innovation, and we change the nature of what we can see, we change the qualitative value of what we have, but we don't change the actual physical stock of material we're consuming on an annual basis. If you think about like this computer I'm standing next to now, I don't think you could have built a computer of this power with anything less than a computer the size of a city 50 years ago. 
but you can now run the thing, you know, could virtually run it on solar power today. And that type of innovation means we're in some ways we're reducing our load on the planet. But at the same time, we've also, you know, there's cyanide inside that there's all sorts of other wonderful things. Uh, we, we have reduced our load in some ways, but we've increased the quantity of what we're consuming as well. And that's been growing physically, so we're taking more and more of a load out of the planet. We can't continue doing that. We've got to go backwards for some time. So that is definitely antithetical to the type of financial system I've described that we have now. And in doing it, I don't think you can get there uh, in a free market economy. To me, that implies some compulsion to say, no, you can't consume that much. This is the rationing system we're applying here. This is how often you can come to the city, like with the, the driving systems in Singapore and so on. That sort of change will be necessary because we really have so drastically overstepped the capacity of the planet that there's no voluntary way we're all likely to fall back to a level the planet can cope with. So essentially, it sounds like you're agreeing with that a, 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 a steady state economy is what we will be. Yeah, we, steady state, plus we, we, we can only, as long as we rely upon production on the face of the planet, then steady state is the only feasible long-term outcome. If we get to the stage where we actually can produce off the planet, and there's asteroids mining and stuff like that, and space lifts to get the stuff down to us, then there's no limit. But that's still at least two or three hundred years ahead in our technology and God knows how long it'll take it in terms of our social evolution. Towards, I guess, corollary question. Um, yeah. In your more complex or most complex model, do you have uh, technology innovation included in one of those factors or yeah. have you discounted? And I, very, I very, no, very simply. Very simply saying there's an increase in labour productivity over time. There's a good colleague of mine, Ed Nell, based at the New School of Social Research, who formed what I think is an excellent phrase to describe the nature of growth in a capitalist economy. He talked about transformational growth. So we normally think in terms of growth in an aggregate sense. It's just, we always think, like I, I just work with straight labour productivity here, producing more widgets, when I don't actually define what the widgets are. But the nature of growth in capitalism has been the transformation of the nature of the commodities we consume. So there's virtually nothing we consume now uh, that is the same as what was consumed 100 years ago. We've transformed the nature of everything. So that qualitative change is a major part of what we can do and have done as a species and will continue doing. So we can continue having the qualitative change, but so long as we're restricted to the planet, we can't go beyond a, a very low level of growth in that and no, no growth or obviously a reduction in our physical use of resources. Let's give Steve a big hand. <laughs> Thank you.